Okay, good evening. Perm is around the corner, so it is always appropriate to spend a little bit of time addressing the Megillah, learning about the Megillah, learning about the essence of the day. The topic that I chose tonight, which is really know thine enemy, understanding what made Haman tick, uh, was very much inspired, unfortunately, by the events going on around us as uh, one of the questions that was just eating at me personally, and I'm sure I know many of you as well, as, as the war originally broke out in Ukraine, was what in the world was Putin's endgame? What was he after? What, what, what was he trying to accomplish? It seems so an elusive concept. Um, and eventually I came across, I'm sure like you, uh, I have been devouring just information uh, hourly, trying to, to keep ahead of what's going on. Eventually coming across a post that somebody began an article with, he might be ruthless, but he's not crazy. He has a plan. And until you understand what the plan is, the West will never really be able to put an end to this because they don't know what they're dealing with. And somebody who's familiar with uh, Russian politics and the Eastern European scene then laid out in terms of oil and money and land and defensive tactics and protection. And there's a plan involved. It's ruthless, but there's at least a plan. And until you understand the plan, then it just seems uh, chaotic which it is, but at least it's a planned chaos. And uh, when I came across a similar idea with Haman, I figured this is the right year to, uh, to share a little bit about this in terms of how this impacts us understanding the villain in the story. There, there's an entire story going on. We read it every year, we're familiar with it, but we have to understand the villain because like all Tanakh, even the villains have a lot to teach us about ourselves, and that's part of what it is that we experience as we go through these days every year, and understanding the parts of us that have to be addressed, um, that were addressed through the villains. So let's learn a little bit about Haman. There's a very famous Gemara, which is quoted very often this time of year about Haman. It's a, it's a complicated and enigmatic Gemara, um, but let's start with that. The Gemara asks in Meseches Chulin a number of different questions about certain biblical figures who lived after the time of the Torah. For example, Haman, Mordechai, and Esther. And the Gemara asks, where do we find a hint? Where do we find something about them in the Torah itself? Haman min HaTorah minayin. Where do we find Haman referenced in the Torah itself? Haman lived way after the Torah was given. Esther min HaTorah minayin. Mordechai min HaTorah minayin. In fact, the Gemara even asks in that same Gemara, Moshe min HaTorah minayin. Where do we find Moshe in the Torah? Now, Moshe is all over the place in the Torah. We're, we're told about his birth all the way through his death. So when the Gemara asks this question, where do we find Moshe in the Torah? And the Gemara answers that particular question by going back to the story of Noah. The Gemara is asking, where is there a hint of the story of this person's life, the essence of what this person represented or needed to accomplish or did accomplish? Where is there something about this already even before that person came onto the scene? Where was Moshe already built into the Torah? And if you study the story of Noah, which we're not doing tonight, you'll find certain parallels. But let's focus on our for tonight. Where is Haman found in the Torah? The Gemara answers, with really an astounding uh, answer. The Gemara says, going all the way back to the original creation of man, Adam and Chava, placed in Gan Eden, and after they eat of the forbidden tree, they hide, they sense their nakedness, they put on hastily put together clothing, and they hear Hashem's voice in the garden, and so they literally hide, and Hashem calls out to them and says, where are you, Ayeka Adam? And Adam responds and says, well, I heard you coming. I was afraid because I was naked. And Hashem says, who told you that you were naked? And then Hashem asks the following question. Hamin ha'etz, 
Asher tzivisi levilti achomimeno. Achalta. Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Have you eaten from that tree? Now, the beginning of that phrase, Hamin Ha'etz, did you eat from that tree? Hamin Ha'etz, from the tree, is spelled with the letters He, Mem, Nun. And since the Torah doesn't actually have vowels, if you were to have seen that Pasuk without vowels, you would see the word Haman. Hey, men, nun. Hey, hey, men, nun. We pronounce it in the Pasuk, Hamin Ha'etz, from the tree. Did you eat? But the letters, hey, mem, nun, are there. The Gemara says, ah, we have found Haman in the Torah because we found the three letters next to each other of a hey, a mem, and a nun. And all of the commentators on this Gemara have to point out and understand the connection to this particular story. Obviously, just the fact that there are three letters next to each other has to be more symbolic of that. And there are some aspects which are very obvious as they relate to Haman. And there's another aspect which is less so, but I hope to, uh, to share with you tonight some beautiful ideas as to what does this story of Gan Eden of Adam HaRishon eating from the forbidden tree, that the sages say, this is the story of Haman. Let's start with the more obvious connection. The more obvious connection when you hear such a, a story that Adam eats from the tree and Haman is the fact that both of them seemed to have had it all and couldn't help themselves from resisting the one thing that they didn't have or that they couldn't have. That's the more obvious connection that we have in this story. Let's start with Adam Arishon. Adam Arishon is placed in Gan Eden. He has it all. All the most beautiful delicacies, every tree, it's right there for him. And Hashem says to him, eat, enjoy, it's all here for you. There's just one tree in the middle that I don't want you to eat from. And at that point, whereas one might have thought, okay, I have everything except this one tree. It shouldn't seem like such a big test. But as, I, as I've heard over the years, this is almost like the, the wet paint test. The wet paint test is when you're walking on a, in a park and you see a bench with a little piece of paper taped to it and it says wet paint. And there's a thought that somehow goes through all of our heads when we see that. It's an amazing thought that goes through our heads. That's like, that what, and that thought is, you know, touch it. And such a strange thing, because you walk by hundreds of benches in your lifetime, and you never once have a desire to reach out and touch the bench. Just the opposite. Why would you want to touch a park bench? It's probably filthy. But now that there's a sign that says wet paint... All of a sudden, there's like something that runs through our mind that says, maybe it's really, is it still wet? I don't know. Let's try. Let's check it out. It's as if the sign says, don't touch. And therefore, we say, oh yeah, you're going to tell me not to touch? I'm going to try to touch it. It's an amazing phenomenon. And Adam Arishun is placed, so to speak, in a supermarket in which... An owner would say, uh, like, a lucky contestant wins some type of lottery, and they're given a, a shopping cart, and they're given three minutes. Whatever you put into however many shopping carts you can fill, it's yours. There's just one item at the end of aisle seven on the third shelf that you can't have. And somehow, even though you have three minutes to get whatever you want, we're all running to that aisle to see, well, what is it that I can't have? And what's the reason for that? Why is it that we're drawn to do things that we can't have? So Rabbi Shlomo Volba explains, 
let's, let's actually, before we get to that, let's take a second. And why is this related to Haman? So this is literally the exact story of, of Haman. Haman is raised up above all the other officers of the time. Achashverosh appoints him to the second in command. He has it all. And he has everybody bowing down to him. Except there is one Jew that every time Haman walks past him, this one Jew refuses to bow down. And Haman says the words... Everything that I have, it's not worth it to me. It's not worth anything to me. Because this one Jew is making me crazy. He has it all. And with all of that, he can't live because there's one thing that he can't have. And that's the obvious connection that we have between the two stories. Why is it that the thing that we can't have makes us so crazy that when someone says you can't have this, that's what it is that we want? So Rabbi Shlomo Valda, who was a, a great and holy Jew, passed away about 15, 16 years ago in, uh, in Israel. He connects this to a fascinating Gemara that discusses the power of what he calls merida or rebellion that we as human beings have within us. And the Gemara records a fascinating discussion. The Gemara says um, Antoninus, who was one of the great Roman uh, leaders who had a relationship with Rebbe, Rebbe Yehuda Hanasi, was the leader of the Jewish people at the time. There are many conversations between these two leading figures uh, of the time during the Second Temple period, Antoninus once asked Rebbe and said, what do you Jews believe when the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, takes hold of a person? When does it happen, he asked Rebbe. Again, the non-Jewish Roman legion leader is asking the leader of the Jewish people, does it happen at conception or does it happen at birth? When does this evil inclination take hold of a person? And Rebbe the Jewish leader said, conception, for sure, right away when a child is formed already in its mother's womb, a, a person has both an evil inclination, an inclination for good, an inclination for bad. They're both present immediately. Antoninus responded and said, can't be, can't be. I'll tell you why, he said, because if there would be such a thing of an evil inclination of a Yetzirah in a person in its mother's womb, the child would kick itself out. Literally, it wouldn't tolerate staying there. It would kick itself out. Rebbe hears that and he says, you know, you're right. And this, Rebbe says, this is the matter that I learned from Antoninus the Roman, that a Yetzirah only begins to take hold of a person at birth, but it can't be possible from the womb. So Rabbi Shlomo of Oba reads this Gemara and he says, what do you see? that there's a part of us that just wants to rebel against authority, that just wants to rebel against anyone telling us, don't do this, you can do this, you must do this, you tell me anything, and there's just a part of us that immediately has a reaction of, don't tell me what to do, I'll decide what to do. And that is a koach of Merida, it's so strong, it's so strong the Gemara concludes that if a developing fetus had it in its mother's womb, it's in the greatest place it could possibly be. Every need it has is being taken care of. It's in the, the warmth, the environment. It, there's no greater place for a fetus than in its mother's womb. But if, if the fetus had such a Yetzirah, it would kick itself out. It's like, you're telling me I have to be here? I don't want to be here. And, and it would literally kick itself out to its own demise. And that's the power that we have to contend with our whole lives 
this, this urge, this yearning to simply rebel against authority and do our own thing. And this is on the most basic level when, we, when you see such a Gemara that says, where do we see Haman? Where is there a hint of him in the Torah? And the Gemara points to Adam HaRishon eating from the tree, a man who had it all, literally had it all, except for one thing. And he couldn't tolerate that. And that's the one thing that he had to have. And you see the same concept in Haman, who had it all, there was one Jew that he couldn't get, and he was willing to sacrifice everything. His entire demise literally is because he can't tolerate not having Mordechai. And on a, on a, as a starting point, that's the connection between the story of Gan Eden and Haman. What I'd like to share with you is a thought from Rabbi David Foreman, um, who has a fantastic take on another level of the connection between the story of Gan Eden and the story of Haman. And it is a beautiful understanding, conceptualization of so much of what we struggle with in our daily lives played out on this major scene of the Purim story, which we read every year. Rabbi Foreman starts with, when we look at the story of the tree in the Garden of Eden, there are two, really three, but let's focus on two for now, questions which you have to address when we learn this story, which is what the sages are connecting to our entire Purim story and the nature of what's driving Haman. Question number one is, what exactly is the nature of this tree? We've just defined it as a tree so far, but the Torah itself calls it the Eitz Hada'as Tov Vera. It is the tree of knowledge of Tov and Rav, good and evil. We'll translate it that as, as such. And what exactly is a tree of knowledge of good and evil? It's not just a tree of knowledge. It's not just the Eitz Hadas. We might refer to that in shorthand as a tree of knowledge, but it's more than a tree of knowledge. The Torah doesn't just refer to it as a tree of knowledge that somehow you become wise or smart. It somehow impacts, it's a knowledge of Tov and Ra when you eat from this tree. What exactly is that needs to be addressed? And number two, what exactly is the point of creating a tree that man is forbidden from eating from? If you don't want mankind to eat from the tree of Tov and Ra, don't create the tree of Tov and Ra. What is the purpose of creating it, putting it in the center of the garden, telling Adam, I gave you this whole garden, it's all yours, and don't eat from that tree? Why do we have that experience of a tree that I'm not allowed to eat from? are the two questions that he addresses as anyone, if you want to understand the story, we have, let's start with those, uh, those two particular stories. He explains as follows. Imagine being a parent giving a gift to a child, as happens regularly when children are young and when children get older. When a parent gives a gift to a child, there are a number of things that the parent would like to accomplish with the gift. One of which is you want to see the child enjoying the gift. If, if you're going to give a gift, you would really like to be able to see that it's something that the child wants. Again, whether or not we're talking about a young child or an older child and we're gifting uh, a little car or we're gifting a house, whichever one it is. But when you give a gift, it would be really nice to see that the child enjoys it, gets use out of it, plays with it and has pleasure from it. There's another aspect of what you hope to accomplish when you give a child a gift. And that is that you want the child to know that you're the one who gave the child the gift. 
part of the gift is in the relationship of what the gift represents. You are my child. I love you. I want to take care of you. I want you to have the things that you, that you want or that you need. I want you to enjoy them. And I want you to know as part of this, this isn't a, uh, uh, borrowing a phrase, a secret Santa kind of, a, like, this is me giving it to you. I'm your parent. I love you. And I want you to have these things. And I want you to know that because you're my child, is, that's the reason why I gave this to you. The child, in receiving the gift, how do they fulfill how do they fulfill that need that a parent often has that I, I want you to know that I'm the one who gave this to you. It didn't just grow on a tree. It didn't just show up magically. I provided this for you. So obviously one of the most basic ways is with a thank you, that the child has gratitude and appreciation and is able to say, uh, I appreciate, thank you. I, yes, I did not get this on my own. It didn't grow on a tree in the backyard. You provided this for me. And, and the thank you is why we train our children to say thank you when they receive something. It's an acknowledgement that we want our children to have when they receive something that they're able to thank the person who gave it. That's the most basic way in which in our, in our human interaction we do so. In the re- interaction between Hashem and us, there's another level of, uh, another layer, I should say, in which we, the recipients of the gift, have a means of acknowledging where the gift came from. And that is what we can generally just call or loosely refer to as the rules of the gift. The fact that the gift comes with certain limitations or restrictions by abiding by those rules is a demonstration that we're not in control. We didn't create this. We are players in the game, and the game has rules. It has limitations. It has restrictions. And by abiding by those is an acknowledgement that the rule giver is actually the provider of what it is that we have. This is a very important concept in which when Hashem says to Adam Arishon, this whole garden is yours. You could do with it whatever you want. I want you to enjoy it. It's my gift to you. But you can't have that tree, which is a Eitz Hada'as Tov Vera. It's a tree of knowledge of good and evil. By Adam Harishon refraining from that tree, by not eating that which he was instructed not to eat from, is an acknowledgement that the garden is a gift. When he violates that, and he takes from it, it's a sign or a show of what we would call bylus or ownership of, I don't have to listen to anybody. I am in control here. And that is a very important concept of what is represented by playing by the rules of the gift that we're given. Rabbi Foreman uses an example which I will borrow and give him credit for. He calls it the Monopoly the Monopoly example. When you play Monopoly, so you get to choose which piece you want to be. You want to be the little hat, you want to be the boots, you could be the wheelbarrow, you could be whatever you want. And when you play the game, so you get to choose every time you land on a property, do you want to purchase this property? Do you want to mortgage it? Do you want to build houses or hotels? It's up to you as you play the game what you want to do. What you can't do is decide where Park Place is going to be on the board. You don't get to make that choice. Park Place is going to be over here. St. James Place is going to be over here. 
only Parker Brothers gets to decide where the properties are on the game. You, as a player in the game, have the right to choose as you play the game what you want to do within the rules, but you can't decide what the board will look like. That is his example of we human beings are put in, so to speak, the game of life. And we have lots of choices to make as we play this game. We get to choose what to buy and what to sell and which piece we want to be, so to speak, within the game. But there's certain uh, boundaries, so to speak. There's certain rules of the game that you can't make up. That's the way the game is. And you're just a player on the game and you have to be within the boundaries of the game. And this is how it's set up. Within that, you can make your choices, but you can't decide what the game is. You're just a player in the game. The way that he uses this is in a very, a very again, deep and uh, important concept. This explains why the nature of the tree is called the Eitz Hada'as Tov Vera, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We know as we read the story, as we're still in the beginning of Bereshis, very little about Hashem, but we do know one thing. And that is, He is the definer, He who defines that which is good and that which is bad. As happens numerous times throughout the very opening psukim of all of Chumash. Vayar Elohim es kol asher asa, or the first couple of times of Vayar Elohim, ki tov, Hashem saw what He created and He said, it's tov. This is good. At the end of creation, he sees all as kol asher tov ma'od. This is very good. Similarly, when he looks at man who does not yet have a spouse, and he says, lo tov heyos adam levado. This is not good that man should be alone. I'm going to fix that. I'm going to create an ezer kinegdo. I'm going to create for him a wife. And at the beginning of the destruction of the world in the times of the flood, just a partial later, Hashem looks out, He sees that the world has become filled with ra'ah, evil, and that needs to be destroyed. So that there are almost three ways of grading the creation that Hashem has. He has tov, this is good, this is low tov, not good, needs to be addressed and fixed, and ra needs to be completely destroyed and eradicated. And these are objective measures that the Melech Malchei Amlachim, the King of Kings, the creator of heaven and earth, can objectively define something and say, this is good, I'm keeping it. This is not yet good, it needs something else. We're leaving totally aside the philosophical uh, issue of how Hashem can create something that needs improvement, but that, that's what the Torah says, that man alone was Lotov and he fixed it, so to speak. We're leaving aside that theological issue, but we have Tov, we have Lotov, and we have Ra. Ra needs to just be eradicated. There's no place for it. It's destroyed and, and rebuilt. Lotov needs to be improved, and Tov. The main point being, when Hashem himself looks out and calls something either Tov or Ra, that is an objective reality. It's, this is the definition of what good is. You want to know what good is? What Hashem calls good is good. What Hashem calls bad is bad. There's very little to debate within that structure. And here, 
Here mankind runs into one of our greatest challenges. Because Hashem created us in the image of Hashem. And there is a desire that we have to be God-like. And in fact, we're required to strive to be God-like. Except there is a time and a place in which it actually becomes inappropriate in which we try to take a little bit more than what we're supposed to. And that is, and that is in this realm of Tov and Ra. The tree is called the Eitz Hadas Tov Vira, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the snake, when, it, when, I, when he speaks to Chava and says, you know why Hashem doesn't want you to eat that tree? Because you're going to become like him if you eat it. You'll become godly in having knowledge of Tov and Ra. Listen to this point. This is again developed by Rabbi Foreman. It's, a, it's just a, a brilliant insight. There's another way to define Tov and Ra, good and bad, which we are very familiar with. And that is no longer as an objective reality of this is good and this is bad, objectively speaking, but we use those same words Tov and Ra in a very subjective manner. For example, if a child were to say, pizza is good, Broccoli is bad. Very common statement you'll hear all the time, not just from children. Pizza is good. What is the statement, pizza is good? Is that a statement on the nutritional value of pizza? It's not a statement on the nutritional value. It's not a statement whether or not pizza is intrinsically good or bad for a human being to consume. It's a statement that says, I like pizza. Pizza is good. Broccoli is bad is not a statement when a person makes such a statement that it's intrinsically unhealthy, just the opposite. It's that I don't like broccoli. And we confuse, not we, like all of us human beings confuse the idea of good and bad and we use it in a language that is subjective to the person who is speaking. I have decided that this is good. I like this or I want that. Therefore, that's good. And something that I don't want or I don't like is something that's bad. What defined it as on the side of good or on the side of bad? This is a, te- this is a bad house to buy. Why is this a bad house to buy? Because it doesn't fit my needs. It doesn't, it's not what I'm looking for. It's the wrong price. It's the wrong layout. It's bad. Well, it's bad for you. Somebody else thought it was good. They they built it or they renovated it in the way that they liked it. But no, it's bad. It's terrible. And we confuse this line between that which is intrinsically a godly tov vira from Hashem's perspective when mankind eats of the fruits and in, imbibes within himself the da'as tovira, it's, it's a godly dis, a, in placing or looking out in the world and defining things tovira. But now it's a human being defining that which is good or that which is bad. And that is the greatest danger that we suffer from. That's really the greatest threat in which we try almost like to, to, to speak, to, to play God almost, in, in we're trying to define the board instead of playing within the... Hashem tells us what's good and bad. The Torah tells us what's intrinsically good and bad, but we like to play the game the way we want the world to look not the way the world has been given to us, which we're playing within the confines of that game. We would like to define the game and define that which is good and bad based on 
our own likes or dislikes. If when I was listening to this and learning about this, and you're thinking about what's going on in the world today, in which you literally, when you when you read what's coming on in different parts of the world and different leaders, the realities that they're painting is literally this: we will define reality, so to speak, and then live it according to the way we want it to be. This has been going on for centuries, in which. We, we struggle with it. Some of us struggle with it in our own little lives, and then sometimes it gets played out in an entire world scene that's going to interrupt the entire world order in which one person can literally try to define what is considered good or bad. But I digress. Let's stay focused on, on, on where we are right now. When Adam eats from this tree, this, uh, the, uh, another layer to the simple koach of merida, of rebellion, of you tell me that I can't eat it, I will eat it, there's another layer here of if Adam were to observe and not eat that, that's acknowledging I'm only a guest in this garden. This is not mine. Someone placed it here and someone placed me here. And the proof that I'm just a guest is I was told that I can't eat that. Observing that rule says, and this is what we need to say our whole lives as Jews, yes. That's actually correct. I am a guest in this world. I'm not the creator. I'm just the little hat or the boot or the wheelbarrow playing the game. I don't make up the rules. I play by what the rules are. The desire to eat from that tree is a desire to be and to have that which we can't have, which is ownership of the game. We want so badly to control this game. We want so badly to be able to make up the rules of what reality should be, but we're really just players in it. And the eating of the fruit is the desire to have the knowledge of tovira, to be able to decide what's good and what's bad. And of course, you have to listen to my definition of what's good. And this is why we have such trouble compromising, because we get in our heads, we know what the reality is. And it's, it's, it's hard to negotiate, it's hard to compromise, it's hard to apologize when the narrative in our head is so clear, I, I, I got what's going on over here, you don't understand what's going on over here. And we live in it, we create our own realities of what's Tov and what's Ra, we want to be the creators of the game. That's a human desire that Adam Arishon has in eating of this fruit, that we now, let's tie it back in, as the sages do, to our character of Haman. Haman is very similar, as we're going to work through a little bit part of our story. Like Adam, he's given everything. A fascinating aspect of the story is what is a piece of information that we're not told. If, if, if someone were to tell you or ask you a very basic question, we're suddenly introduced to Haman in the third parak of the story. And he becomes a very powerful person, so powerful, in fact, that he's able to create an edict that everybody has to bow down to him. He's able to get the king to wipe out an entire... So you'd say to yourself, what did Haman do? What were his successes? What's his skill set? What did he accomplish? What does his resume look like? Zero. We know nothing about what Haman accomplishes, just that the Megillah says it happens to be after this period of time when Esther is placed in, 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 uh, in place of uh, Queen Vashti, that the king appointed Haman and raised him up above everybody else. It's as if, as if he's given a gift like Adam Arisha, you have everything. What did you do to deserve it? 
We're not really told anything, but he becomes the second most powerful person. And as the Megillah tells us, he walks out of his house and, and Mordechai refuses to bow down. What does Haman do when Mordechai refuses to bow down? Let's take a look at a few of the Psukim uh, while we're here. Let's learn a little bit of the Megillah. So the terrorist, the Megillah tells us as follows, Vayar Haman, I'm in Pasukei here in the third parak. Vayar Haman ki ein Mordechai kore mishtachavelo. He says, indeed, Mordechai is not bowing down. He's filled with rage. And they, he, he finds out, of course, that, uh, that uh, it's not just Mordechai, his entire nation he wants to destroy. And he, cre- uh, he works out with the king. I want to skip down a little bit farther down. He gets permission to write out the letters, and he sends the letters to uh, the entire, uh, entire Medina. Um, we're going to go, sorry, the sixth parak. The, uh, at the end of the party, excuse me, the end of the fifth parak. Here we go. Um, Esther, of course, goes in eventually to speak to the king. And uh, here, I'll pick up from here. Um, and Haman, Achashverosh, and Haman, and Esther have a, a, a three-person party. And Haman walks out, and he is on top of the world. Literally. He, it's, it's him, the king, and queen. It's, it's an amazing situation. However, And then he sees this Mordechai, who does not get up, who does not stir, and he's filled with his rage again. And he comes home, and let's read these psukim. I just try to put yourself, you're, you're in Haman Shur, you're an observer watching Haman. You just left the party. You're the second in command as it was already. You've got everybody bowing down to you. And now Mordechai refuses. You come out of this party. He gathers Ohavav, he gathers all of his friends, and he says like this, He says, Do you know how wealthy I am? Do you know how much money I have? Virov Banov, do you know the children that I have? And he lists his ten children. Do you know how I've been promoted? Asher how I've been raised above all the other officers. Not only that does he say, I'm wealthy, I have children, I have status, I have prestige, and I'm the only person on the planet invited to the party with the king and queen. Just me. Nebuch, you would say. And this is not worth anything to me when I see Mordechai. Nebuch, you have it all. And here he is like, look at what I have. It's, it's almost as if he's begging and pleading to become relevant. But it's not worth anything to me, he says, when I see Mordechai. Fatomer lo zeresh ishto. His wife Zeresh says, Yasu eitz gavoa chamishim Let's make a tree. Let's make the gallows. We're going to make a gallows. It's going to be 50 amos high. You're going to go to the king. They're going to hang Mordechai on it. And then you'll be happy. Let's, let's trail a couple of uh, parallels between our story in Gan Eden and what actually plays itself out here. So besides for the obvious one that we've been addressing, which is we, but we have characters who have everything. Adam Arishon has everything except for the tree, the fruit that he can't eat. And Haman has everything, literally. And he's telling it to his family, I have everything, but I, this Mordechai is making me crazy. Who's the one who gives Adam, who gives him the forbidden fruits? It's his wife, Chava, who's of course instigated by the Nachash, by the snake. But it's his wife who says, here, eat this. Zeresh, Haman's wife, says the same thing to him and says, you can have it all. You think you're stuck, 
that you can't get over that last little hump and you can't have it all? You can. We're going to figure out a way to get rid of Mordechai. And she uses the word, she doesn't use the word gallows. She says, Ya'asu eitz. Let us make a tree. And the word eitz, which of course right away, as, we're, as we know the sages found the story directly linked to the story of the eitz adas, she particularly uses the story of eitz. When Adam Arishon eats of the fruit, the Torah itself says, eating of the fruit, biyom, biyom achol mimenu, the day that you eat of it, most times you'll become a person who will die. We become mortal in the eating of the fruit. And so it is with Haman, literally this eats that he's going to plant in his backyard upon which to hang Mordechai becomes the source of his own, his own demise. He says, great, I love this plan. That night, the king can't sleep, as we know. He's tossing and he's turning, and so he says, read me the book of Chronicles, let's find out, maybe it'll help me, well, leaving aside why he particularly wanted that book. They open it up, they read about Mordechai, and he asks, what did we do about Mordechai? He saved my life several years ago when he found out about the plot of Big Son and Teresh. How do we reward him? And they say to him, we haven't done anything. At that moment, at that moment, Haman comes in. And I, I, I want to, you'll see this, it like jumps off of the page when, we, when we're reading it the way that we've set it up right now. It's the middle of the night. Haman has a plan, a plot to kill Mordechai. Why is it that he needs to kill Mordechai? Because he has it all, except for the one thing that says, you don't really have it all. You're not, you're not really the king. You're not really in charge. There's one thing that you don't have. But he can't take it. He cannot take that there's a Mordechai in the world, just like Adam Arishon had it all. But that one thing that he didn't have said to him, you're not really in charge. Haman comes into Achashverosh in the middle of the night. And Achashverosh now wants to reward Mordechai. And he's totally unaware of the plan that Haman has, which is why he even showed up in the first place. He doesn't know that. He hasn't even asked Haman what he's doing there. And he initiates the conversation. And the king says to what would you do with a person that the king wants to give great honor to? So Haman hasn't even begun. He wants to hang Mordechai. But the king asks him a question. How would you give a person honor? And Haman says to himself, There's no one, anyone, anyone, or any way that the king would want to honor somebody more than me. Obviously, he's referring to me, Haman says. What does Haman request at this point? Now, one would have to step back as an objective observer and say, Haman, you're in the king's chamber in the middle of the night, and the king's asking you, what would you want to... Don't you think you'd want to not rile the king up and do exactly what it is that Haman does, which is, he says, I'll tell you what I would do. Yaviu levush malchus. Take clothing of the king... Asher lavash boa melech that the king himself wears, v'sus asher rachav alav melech the horse that the king rides upon, v'asher nitan keser malchus berosho and the crown of the king, and then we're going to dress up this person in the king's clothing, in the king's horse with the king's crown, and parade him through town. You're the king. Put yourself back in the king, and this is what Haman is thinking about. This is what he would say is the one thing that I would do to honor somebody. King, 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 king. 
He cannot hide his ambition at this moment. Yes, literally at this moment, because in his mind, he showed up with a plan to eradicate Mordechai, which is going to give him everything. I now have it all. Because until this, I don't have it all, but I want it all. And the exact struggle that Adam Arishon has in the Garden of Eden, when there's a rule that says you can't eat this, it acknowledges I'm not in control. I'm a player. I'm not the one who makes up the board. And Haman wants it all. And what comes out of his mouth, like literally the worst things that he could possibly have said at that point from any strategic point of view, to say to the king, I want to be king, basically. That's what he's saying. I want to be king. You don't say that to the king. When the king asks you, what would you do to honor somebody? But that's what comes tumbling out of his mouth because that is what he wants. He's a person who's not actually in control. There's somebody above him, but he wants that. This, the commentators point out, Haman actually said three things. They said the clothing of the king, the horse of the king, and the crown of the king. But no other reference of crown ever appears. The very next Pasuk, Haman says, and you shall place the clothing and the, and the horse into one of the officers, and you should dress the person, ride him on the horse, wearing the king's clothing, and say, What happened to the crown? The crown is never mentioned again. So the sages point out that when he said crown, Ahasuerus' face turned red. And Haman said, oh, I overstepped my bounds. And he drops the crown and he only focuses on the clothing and the horse. But the crown was too much because even he saw Ahasuerus like, what are you talking about wearing the crown of the king? But this ambition to become the king literally overrides everything about Haman. And this... This is one of the critical components that the sages in the story of the Megillah want us to understand as we read, as we read this story. Haman is being driven. He's being driven in the same way the sages say that Adam HaRishon was. You can have so much, almost everything, almost, almost everything. But in, in not having it all is Hashem's way of saying, say thank you to me. Acknowledge that I'm the one who gave you this gift. I'm the creator. I gave you the board. You're a player on the board. And these are the rules of the board game. Sometimes we know all the rules. Sometimes we don't recognize the rules. But we're players. And we have to recognize that we're just players on the board game. But there's such a desire to have the knowledge of good and bad that's our own subjective. We decide what's good and bad. I want to decide. You know, when, when it's... Using that monopoly muscle, taking it a step further, you know, sometimes when you play with, with, uh, with children or with adults and they get frustrated, it's like they make up their own rules. This is how we're going to play. The rules aren't working for me. So I don't want to play by these rules. And also in the middle of the game, you know, some uh, recalcitrant other, this, this, the new rules, I win. Like, it doesn't work that way. You got to play by the rules. No, I don't have to play by the rules. I don't want to play by the rules. Well, we all have that within us in, I don't want to play by the rules. I don't like the rules. And the truth is, I don't need to tell you, life sometimes has rules that we don't like. Painful rules, difficult rules that we do not understand and I'm not offering explanations to them. Just that we're the wheelbarrow in the game. We might want to switch park place from here to there, but we can't. Adam Harishon wanted it because that tree, by not eating it, said and acknowledges, I'm not in control. 
But we want to be in control. We want it so bad, Adam eats of it and it changes all of world history because of that. And that we now have this subjective desire to tell us what's good and what... I'll tell you what's good and what's bad. Meanwhile, everybody thinks they know what's good and what's bad. But it's really only Hashem who can tell us what's actually intrinsically good and bad. Kirvas Elokim Li Tov. David Melo says, being close to Hashem, that's what's good. We have all sorts of other ideas of what's good. Being close to Hashem is what's good. That's, that's what we're trying to accomplish. And Haman, the villain in our story, the antagonist in our story, the sages point out, Hamin Ha'etz, did you eat from the tree? That's Haman. That's the desire to have so much and to need to be in control of it all. And it stems all the way back from that story. It stems, I'm gonna, I have to knock off Mordechai. I'm going to make an eights. I'm going to go into the king and I can't even contain myself when he says, what would you do? I want to be king. I want to be king. Because the king is in control. The king makes the rules. And the sages are trying to highlight us. One of the many, many lessons of Purim. One of the many lessons is Hashem's hand is hidden in this story. Is That's Parker Brothers. We are players. And, and the lesson of playing the game, of being able to acknowledge the gifts that we have, the blessings that we have, to appreciate, I have 99%, what a gift. I don't have that last percent, I know. It's because everything that I have is a gift. And that's, that's the rules with which I have these gifts. And I acknowledge the things that I can't have, the things that I want, that I wish could be different, but I'm so appreciative of the things that I have is the acknowledgement of the role, which is what Hashem wants of us. Acknowledge, I created this beautiful world for you to enjoy, and there's certain restrictions and limitations that we have in it. But to appreciate the gift that we do have is part of the gift of this entire Purim story. That's what drove Haman mad, which is his own demise, and understanding that is only a benefit to us to experience the beauty and brilliance and joy of what perm is, because the more we recognize that tree I can't have, the more I can actually focus on and appreciate all the trees that I do. Wishing everyone a wonderful, uplifting, exciting, and happy perm. Um, and thank you, as always, for joining in.